Well, this morning we continue this series in which we have been exploring on Sunday mornings, this series in which we've called Differentiate. And uh, I have actually really enjoyed this series. The Sermon on the Mount, this part that we've been looking at, is one of my favorite passages to study and to, to really know, to explore, and to understand. And I hope it has been meaningful for you as well. It's been interesting as I upload the videos and the audio files to see uh, where sermons go. And, and uh, you know, there are people all over the world that are listening into our sermons and into uh, also our videos. And so it's fun to think that we might have a reach that is even further than what we see on a Sunday morning. And uh, this morning, as we continue to study differentiate, what we are studying is this Sermon on the Mount. It is this unique and extended sermon uh, from Jesus. Now, in churches, we get mad when people are longer than 20 to 30 minutes, but this sermon in which Jesus is preaching is like multiple chapters of a book, right? These people were on the mountainside for some time and were expected to remember these things that differentiated them. And I I find that fun because I don't think most of us, myself included, would have enjoyed sitting for this whole sermon from Jesus. This unique and extended sermon from Jesus really calls us to be uh, differentiated, to live in a differentiated way, and to also uh, discover a new way of being human. We might also say that differentiate is our seven-week study through a collection of Jesus' writings and teachings found in the book of Matthew that challenge, remind, and equip us to live in a differentiated way in our neighborhoods and spheres of influence. In the first week, we looked at how Jesus raised the bar to truth-telling and to keeping oaths. The second week, we focused on Jesus' teaching around revenge and also holding grudges. And last week, we explored how God's intent or his purpose behind the commandment to love your neighbor also meant and included loving our enemies. Though there are elements of the Sermon on the Mount found in many of the other Gospels, no other book of the Bible makes them as central, as important, and as clear as Matthew. Matthew finds great importance in retelling the teaching and healing ministry of Jesus and is quick to point out and pay attention to where he sees Jesus fulfilling prophecy of God's intent. It's essential for that reason that we look at these collections of Matthew. We explore, we understand, and know these passages that Matthew really upholds and kind of illuminates as central to our faith. Some of you may saw on Facebook, I posted this quote this week. American fitness kind of guru, Richard Simmons, we we probably remember him. He was always this goofy guy that was, had big curly hair throughout the 70s and 80s and maybe even up into the 90s. He was famously known for his comedic appearance, his uh, unique fitness routines. And he once said, when you gather up all the balls of life that you're trying to juggle, it is very difficult trying focus in on or taking care of yourself. But that's why God invented me. So I came, so I can come and teach and preach and make people laugh and give them some education so they can start liking themselves better. Right, so we know Richard Simmons, when we think about him, we kind of see this goofy guy that was always about fitness, and he points out that in life, 
uh, it's hard when we are trying to juggle everything to worry about ourselves, to focus on ourselves. And he sees his God-given call to teach and preach fitness in a way that makes people feel better about themselves. And, and to be honest, besides being a jester by his own confession, most of us knew Richard Simmons and we knew what he was about. We knew that he really did teach and preach fitness. That's what differentiated him. It's the sermon he was known by. It's what we associate with him. We've been studying perhaps the sermon which Jesus is most known for, the Sermon on the Mount. Now, regardless if you grew up in the church or not, I'm sure that you know that Jesus taught about loving your enemies, not practicing revenge and caring for the poor. In fact, it's these sermons that differentiate Jesus from any other religious figure. Not only do these things, though, differentiate Jesus, these teachings, these kind of sermon that he's given us are things that he expects to differentiate us as his followers as well. When people see us, they should see these things that are included in the Sermon on the Mount in the same way that we see fitness when we look at Richard Simmons. We are studying this series with great detail so that we should know what should differentiate us and to help us understand who we are. This morning, before we read our passage, I want to tell you a short story. This morning we'll look at how Jesus is actually going to address charity or almsgiving or giving to the needy in the Sermon on the Mount. Now in Jewish tradition, there was this well-known story of an ordinary individual who gave generously and compassionately to the poor, to the care of the needy. In Jewish tradition, this story is known as Tobit, and, and why most of us do not know the story. In fact, I didn't know it uh, two a few years ago. It will probably be familiar to some of you who would have grown up in a Catholic church or a Lutheran or Episcopalian church that uses the Apocrypha books, the extra books, because it is in those. And it appears in the Old Testament, and it's a story in which the audience of Jesus' time would have known really well. They would have kept it before them. It was a story they told each other and a story they found great hope in. In fact, there are several places throughout the New Testament where it feels that Jesus is actually referencing this story or this book of Tobit. And, and this passage that we're going to look at in Matthew 6, 1-4 through 4 this morning is just one of them. It's just one of the places that we see Jesus kind of connect and echo or even walk right up against this well-known Jewish story. Now, Tobit may or not have been a real person. That's been debated both in Christendom as well as Jewish culture. But it doesn't take away from the meaning of the story. It doesn't take away from what the intent and the plot was. Tobit was a man who lived by deeply loving God, loving the Jewish laws, and caring for his family. He was the perfect member of society. Tobit lived in Nineveh, and during that time, the northern kingdom of Israel was taken into captivity. And everywhere Tobit looked, people were hurting, but because of their hurt, they were also abandoning God, they were abandoning their traditions, and more importantly, they were abandoning the laws in which they were to live by. His neighbors had given in to idol worship, and his Fellow Jews had all but stopped burying people according to Jewish tradition. 
Despite trends in the popular culture around them, Tobit decides these things aren't going to affect him. He will not be shaken. He wanted to live a life that honored God with everything that he was. Now, Tobit came from a wealthy background. And throughout his story, though, that doesn't stop him from struggling with things, including blindness. Despite this, he became known in Jewish society for his right way of living and also for his compassionate giving to the poor. Tobit knew to live honorably included living a life of charity. It is for this reason that he is actually most remembered, this, this life of charity. Listen to him write in his own words about charity. Prayer with fasting is good, but better than both is almsgiving with righteousness. A little with righteousness is better than wealth with wrongdoing. It is better to give alms than to lay up gold. For almsgiving saves from death and purges away every sin. Those who give alms will enjoy a full life, but those who commit sin and do wrong are their own worst enemies. Talbot saw that giving to the needy, living a life of charity, was more important than prayer and fasting. He also makes this claim that someone who gives to the poor uh, just a little bit with good motives is better than the person who has lots to give to the poor and gives with bad motives and for selfish reasons. His belief is that giving to the needy brings about this full life, this holistic life. Those same things are what Jesus is actually going to echo and teach on this morning. And in many ways, we can see some similarities to this in Jesus' teaching. About the the Tobit Jewish source, the Torah.com writes, "Tobit Tobit was read as a book that highlighted the importance of charity, which would have appealed to a Jewish community facing poverty and an uncertain socioeconomic future. This was a story of hope. It was a story of way of living. It was full of charity, of how to pray and how to fast. It's these three areas from uh, Tobit and Rabbionic preaching and teaching, charity, prayer, and fasting, that will actually come to define the way of living by Jewish piety. Interesting, it's these three areas that Jewish piety is defined by, charity, prayer, and fasting, that Jesus is going to begin to address in Matthew 6. Those three things that Tobit taught and modeled that became Jewish culture are now the three things Jesus is going to begin to address in Matthew 6. Tobit modeled an honorable life of charity, a life of charity known as tadaka, and that is a word in Hebrew which is the also the concept and word for charity. It was and is still central to Jewish culture. And actually in American culture, we tend to pride ourselves in being a charity people, that we are full of compassion. They place charity boxes in places of business and worship, just like we do. We can go to Turkey Hill. We can see that little can there. 
somebody's raising money for something. They had banquets and fundraisers to give to the poor. Yeah, we do that. And because they valued this uh, intentional part and honorable part of living a life of charity, they began to even promote incentives to draw people to charitable giving. In fact, they almost incorporated it into every worship gathering and every time they met. And they began to have these incentives to get the higher donors out. It's those incentives that Jesus is going to have problems with in this passage. One, one rabbi for Shabbat writes about this, this charity word, this tzedakah. It's often translated as charity. It's a mainstay of Jewish life. The sages teach that the world was built upon kindness. But Tzedakah goes one step beyond, literally translated as justice or righteousness. Tzedakah tells us that sharing what we have with others isn't something special. It's the honest and just thing to do. Tzedakah is not limited to the gifts of money, but also sharing time, expertise, or even a kind of smile or all forms of charity. This morning we're going to be reading from Matthew 6, 1 through 4. The way of living a life of charity in which uh, was modeled by Tobit, which was upheld by Jewish piety, begins to struggle in the time of Jesus. Even though Tobit and his story taught that it wasn't how important how much we gave, just that it was important we gave with good motives, the Jewish concept uh, begins to change. And even though Tadako was not bad in any way, it became this legalistic obligation at an institutional level. All those things were beginning to surface at the time of Jesus. Because human beings are broken vessels. We all know that whenever we try to do good things, it's true that sometimes we do good things for bad reasons. Sometimes what motivates us to do good things is really bad reasons or good incentives. In Matthew 6, Jesus is not concerned with his practice of living a life of charity. Rather, he wants to make sure we aren't doing good things for our own fleshy appetites, for the affirmations of others, and for earthly ambitions. And he's going to address that over all of these Jewish teachings of piety, both in giving prayers and fasting. In this passage, Jesus certainly wants his followers to bless people because they themselves have been blessed. And in a time where people were struggling with poverty and uh, oppression, charity to them must have seemed unfair. It's a time where the synagogue becomes a place of responding to the poor, and that felt obligatory. Matthew 6, 1-4 through 4, explains through Jesus' lens both why and how we are supposed to give. Addressing those on the mountainside, Jesus spoke these words. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. 
This morning, I want us to practice paying attention to the text in which we just read. In many ways, if we had the time, we could compare it to the story of Tobit and also this understanding of Tzedaka. But however, I think it's important that in this passage, we find the overarching theme as well as explore some of the key cultural understandings and concepts in which Jesus is addressing. In this passage, the first thing I want us to draw attention to is that Jesus is not concerned with that they are giving, but rather why and how they are. It's obvious Jesus doesn't have a problem with their giving to the poor. He doesn't have a problem with living a life of charity. He doesn't have a problem with the practice of tzedakah as a way of living. Jesus isn't counteracting a teaching or a practice that's in play. He is only telling them a better way to practice it, to live it out. Listen to that first verse again. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others. The word for righteousness there is a really interesting one. It could be translated more literally as your characteristic of needing to be in the right. Do we ever need to be in the right? Are we going to argue about that later with football teams, right? We all have our need to be in the right. Jesus wants no one to love their characteristic of being right. That never happens to us, right? Jesus loves charity for the poor. After all, he started this sermon on the mount with the hopeful, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs will be the kingdom of heaven. However, Jesus wants to make sure of two things. Both how we give, our actions, and also why we give, our motives inside. He wants to make sure that they are pure in origin. Those pure motives behind our giving should be the very thing that Jesus is teaching from the Sermon on the Mount that differentiates us from everyone else around us. Yes, we may live in a culture that lives lives of charity, but the way that we live lives of charity needs to be even more pure and differentiated from them. The layman's Bible commentary points out this about the overarching theme of this passage. The main thrust of this section is that the disciples' piety, almsgiving, and prayer not, are not to be like that of the hypocrites who did their righteous deeds to be seen and admired by others. And N.T. writes, comments similar. He says, now in chapter 6, the focus is to begin with on the three things Jesus saw, still sees, as standard obligations. Giving money praying, and fasting. In each case, Jesus' point is the same. What matters is motive. And religious duties are, if those religious duties are done with an eye on the audience, they became rotten to the core. In that passage, we also see that Jesus addresses the why behind their motive, right? He's addressing the why behind their motives. Listen to Jesus' warning once again in Matthew 6, 1 through 2. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Jesus is really beginning to address the why behind their motives. He wants to give them a new why for giving. He wants us to live by higher and purer motives. It is essential that we don't give to be recognized or seen by others. That 
is wrong ambition. It's essential that we don't announce it because that's craving fleshly appetite in which God has not called us to live out. And it's essential that we don't announce it to be honored. This is not charity. It's working and acting for affirmation. We all do these things from time to time. Especially craving the affirmations of others. And these things often influence why we do good things. Jesus calls those with these ambitions behind their why hypocrites. Now, Hypocrite there is actually a theater word. It it means one who acts with a mask on. So in Jesus' time, a very theatrical culture, a person who would put on a mask and do a little skit on the streets or in a theater was a hypocrite. Jesus says that those who act with a mask on will not receive rewards. That word there for Reward is also another interesting one. It is actually the word wages, that God pays with life. And that is exactly what we saw echoing Tobit's story. Those, he said, who give alms for pure reasons will enjoy a full life. We need to give. The why being why we need to give is because we have seen that God has given to us. We are blessed to be a blessing to others. I think the saddest thing about these motives is actually where they were being initiated. This is a big thing of what Jesus is actually addressing in this passage. In this passage, Jesus takes aim at the charity culture, this way of loving that living that was taught, modeled, and even created by the leaders of their faith. The Pharisees, like so many aspects of faith, seemingly made giving charity about incentives, obligation. And affirmation. The interpreter's Bible commentary makes this point. Almsgiving was so stressed in Pharisaic religion that the word sometimes was synonymous with righteousness. You weren't righteous unless you gave to the poor, and you weren't really righteous unless you really gave a lot to the poor. They had begun to teach and model and create a culture that actually gave extra merit to those who lived lives of charity. They saw good in giving, and so to get people to give, they began to find ways to make them give more. And the ways in which they got them to give more was, for instance, they would blow trumpets at certain practices and and also at certain gatherings. And then they all of a sudden, well, when you put money in that box, we'll blow trumpets. And and seemingly, then if you had a bigger, according to Jesus' word, you had a bigger donation, right, there was more trumpets to be blown. Even as I write this, I realize that we've done this in the church. Recently, I talked to the pastor who was part of a different denomination, and they were fundraising to build a new building. And he said, you know, we need, a, we need this part of the building in a steeple, and if you would pledge this much money, you get naming rights of that building, or that steeple gets your plaque on it. Right? We all know church growth strategies like this, Right? That's an incentive. That's exactly what Jesus is taking issue with here. We live in a world where there is constantly crowdsourcing. If you give to this ministry, you'll get a year subscription to this magazine. You will get recognized in the page in the magazine. These are incentives that cheapen doing a good thing for good reasons. 
The idea of these places of leadership doing this is exactly what Jesus is dressing this. And it's not a sign of righteousness that Jesus is okay with. So as Jesus looks around at the start of his ministry, he is troubled by this distorted culture that the faith leaders had allowed to be created, and maybe even created. Again, the layman's Bible commentary. He sees in the Jewish leaders of the day an insincerity that is not befitting of the kingdom. Matthew teaches us Jesus announced that his kingdom was initiated with his presence. And the first teachings on the Sermon on the Mount was about giving the laws of the kingdom. And now we are going to see he's beginning to address what the behavior of the kingdom looks like. The third thing that I want to draw from this passage is that Jesus teaches that in our lives of charity, it also matters how it's practiced. Not only why we give, but how we give matters. He told them in Matthew 6, 3-4, But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Not only have they distorted the why they give to the poor, but now they are distorting the how they give to the poor. As I said earlier, this synagogue had become a place of response to the poor. And that's not necessarily bad. The reason historians think the synagogue became this place to respond to the poor is for two reasons. It allowed the beggars to not need to stand in the middle of the street. There was less beggars at this time because they just needed to go to the synagogue, and the synagogue would give them their allowance, and so you didn't see people in the streets. The other thing it did was only the rabbis would have known who the poor were that needed help. It gave honor and dignity in the anonymity of those who were coming for help. So people gave to the poor, but they didn't actually know who was taking from the pot, just that it was going to those that were needed. It protected them. And so they began to find ways to incorporate the need to meet these needs in everything that they were. And they began to blow trumpets to call people to action. And they also started to even do these big ways of honoring people who would give to these anonymous gift boxes in the back. The Pharisees modeled a way of giving that actually really placed the giver or even themselves at the center. A life of charity not only lives more fully, they believed, but it also betters themselves. And this is still a concept that is in Jewish teaching, that if you give, it will better you. And, and I watched this rabbi this week teaching on this through the teaching of the Gimel, the Dudah, and the Hay, these, these words and these alphabet letters that, that represent physical things as a life of charity. And they believe that if they do this, there will be a betterment for them. When practiced, though, when we practice giving as worship, we aren't even to let our left hand know what our right hand is doing. Jesus is calling to not give to better themselves in any way, but to give, and again, not out of obligation, but to give because it is an act of worship that you are giving so that God sees you, that you are recognized by your Father who sees all things that you do in secret. Now, what's interesting about that is that whole left-hand and right-hand thing. In Jewish culture, the left-hand, right-hand comment is the idea that the minute you do something in an act of worship, you should automatically forget that you've done it. You shouldn't even give your right hand time to process what your left hand did and vice versa. The idea was the minute you acted, you forgot what you did. It was an act of worship. 
Now, too often, we as the church find fault in what people are doing in the world and not in ourselves. And what Jesus is doing in this passage is actually turning them to look and examine themselves for motives. Pharisees were no different. They were always finding fault with people who didn't live up to their model. They were always concerned with the people on the street who were doing wrong, not those inside their own walls. Yet Jesus wants us to examine our motives and our actions, to make sure that we're giving because we've been blessed to give, and also that we are giving in worship a response that is of a private matter, not public obligation. Like these Pharisees, we often find fault with those out there and not with our own actions and motives, or not my own actions and motives. Century, second century Rabbi Nathan posted uh, this in his writings. There are ten portions of hypocrisy in the world, nine in Jerusalem and one in the rest of the world. He understood what Jesus was doing. Right? There's always more hypocrisy inside than outside. And if we were writing about the church, they, we might say there are ten types of hypocrites in the world, and nine of them are actually in the church, and only one in the secular world. Yet the narrative of the church as a result of Christendom politics and power, seems to be occupied with judging that hypocrite outside and ignoring the nine that are inside. Jesus is shifting that reality in this passage. He wants his followers, when they get off that mountainside, to examine their own actions, their own motives. And worship is seemingly meaningless unless it's performed solely for his sake and the sake of the kingdom. Giving, living a life of charity, was to be an act of worship. Now, I know we all want to live a life of charity, and I think we all understand why and how we are to give for pure reasons, but in all honesty, we are human. We are broken. We are selfish. We distort things, and we have failed too often to examine our own personal actions and motives to make sure that ways that we are acting are actually pure of heart. For that reason, there are a few things that I think we can do to respond to this passage. First, let me just read this quote from N.T. Wright. Jesus instead wants us, you, me, to be so eager to love and please God that we will do everything we should do for his eyes alone. For that reason, he gives quite specific instructions on how to be sure of integrity, of the outward appearance being matched by inter, inner reality. We are to live a life of charity because we have experienced God's undeserved charity. The charity we've experienced from God is undeserved. Why would we not want to live a life of charity to bless those around us? We are to give to others as an act of worship, not even allowing ourselves to reflect on what we've done. But more importantly, it's essential we find a way to consistently examine our own hearts, motives, and actions. Jesus makes it clear that those who live lives of unexamined motives and actions are hypocrites or play actors. And I don't want that to define me. I don't want that to define you. And I know you don't want that to, to define you. We must be careful not only about the why and how we give, but we must also be careful of the practices in which we engage ourselves with. 
I mentioned the church earlier, and not long ago I was at a Christian college where the president stood up and was fondly bragging that the addition to the building was named after him because in his lifetime he gave so much and invested so much in the college. It's an incentive. We live in a world that is full of crowdsourcing and fundraising campaigns that reward the highest givers. We have all probably participated in things like that, myself included. It's essential we begin to talk with other about these things and examine our reasons for being part of them. We live in a culture where you can also, for your birthday, raise money on Facebook and publicly share where you are donating to, and you can even click share on your contribution to share how much you've given. The story of Tobit is an individual who lived a life of charity in a hard time, and he lived it for the purest of reasons. In it, he recognized that life was given to him as a reward. And Jesus said, those who give out of worship will be rewarded by God. God pays in life. These other incentives, these other reasons for giving are the only reward you will get. Like Richard Simmons was known for fitness. May we be known for a life of charity that preaches and teaches that we give and live for the purest reasons. As the worship team comes forward this morning, I want to read to you a quote from a rabbi in which I encountered this week. And in his quote, he begins to tell us that you will not be able to modify your thought process or your behavior to live a better life of charity. In all honesty, the only thing you can do is experience it for yourself. There's no way that you can just say, okay, I'm going to have pure motives. It starts with a transformation in your heart. And he writes on that matter in this way. The Torah, therefore, the Torah, therefore tells us something simple and practical. Give, and you will come to see life as a gift. You don't need to be able to prove God exists. All you need is to be thankful that you exist, and the rest will follow. As long as in your heart you turn to God, and realize that you are undeserved of his grace and his blessing, then automatically we will not only prove that God lives through our actions, we will also live a life of pure charity because in our hearts we know that we have been blessed.